Would you stand with us as we begin our service with prayer? An addendum to our prayer requests, I was just informed that Jennifer Ziegler is going to be having knee surgery this Tuesday morning uh, because it's very difficult for her to get around. We all know that uh, situation she has with the arthritis, how severe it is, and now compounded by this uh, this problem with her knees so I don't know the extent of it if it's replacement or just an open surgery but uh, let's keep her in the back of our minds and uh, pray for her uh, extensively on Tuesday Doug would you kindly lead us in prayer Amen. You take your red hymnal this morning, the Trinity, and turn to number 338, 338 in the red.
anyone have a favorite hymn this morning? Miss Sheila. <coughs> mm -hmm. <coughs> Say it again, I'm sorry. It's just one that you one that you love. Alrighty. One that you love. Amen. Three thirty four in the red. Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. You'll find that on page 1588 in your pew Bible. And when you've come to that, please stand with us. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to see her and said, Greetings. You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, 
You have found favor with God. You will be with a child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who was said to be barren, is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Father in heaven, we pray your blessing upon this reading and that it would touch the hearts of the lost, that they would understand that their life without you is futile and destined for destruction. Be with us, Lord, who are within your grasp, that you would give us these comforting words to restore us and to sustain us till you come. This we ask in the name of Christ, our Lord, our Savior. Amen. You take your brown hymnal this time, excuse me, and turn to number 257 in the brown hymnal. 257.
Our scripture text this morning is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. In our series, A Living Faith, we looked last time at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Jesus life and ministry. The Holy Spirit's work in Jesus began with his conception in the womb of his virgin mother, Mary. Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, and this information comes to us by way of special revelation. That is, God had to tell us this. The Spirit played a dominant role in Jesus' human development. The maturing process can only apply to Jesus' humanity, but it did apply. We understand that God does not mature. He does not go through change. Christ acted as a man filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a real man, not God pretending to be a man. The Spirit of Christ is the promised counselor. We just sang a song on that. Who takes up residence in every believer when we come to saving faith in Jesus. This is called being born from above or born again. Well, today's study deals with the title Jesus used of himself more frequently than any other title that he used, and that is the expression calling himself the Son of Man. As we come to our study, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Lord Jesus, please send the very Holy Spirit that we are talking about today. Send that Spirit into our hearts and lives that we may understand the truth of the Scripture. 
the Bible itself testifies of the Scripture that it is the sword of the Spirit. Well, if it's the sword of the Spirit, then he's the one that's going to have to wield it in such a way as to cut away the sinfulness of our hearts and at the same time become the scalpel that brings healing to those areas of our life that are full of disease and putrid wretchedness. And we thank you for the work of the Spirit. So bless us this day as we gather in the presence of our God, that you might indeed pour out your Spirit upon us and teach us of yourself. This we ask for your glory and our good. Amen. Our text today is Luke chapter 12. We're talking today about one of the titles that Jesus uses for himself, and that title is the Son of Man. The Son of Man. As indicated, this was Jesus' favorite title for himself. It appears 81 times in the gospel accounts, yet I dare say that it is one of the strangest titles to us. And not only so, but it baffled the people of Jesus' own day. But since it is so frequently used by the Lord, it is incumbent on us trying to see the nature of his glory to try to gain some comprehension of what he meant when he called himself the Son of Man. Some introductory thoughts are in order here. Firstly, this title is not a Greek colloquialism of Jesus' day, but it is a literal rendition of the Aramaic in our text. Bar, meaning son, and nosh, meaning man, Barnash, son of man. It's a literal translation of the Aramaic. This This idiom was commonly used to mean man or simply the pronoun I when speaking of humility or when speaking emphatically I and no one else. Very strong word. Some of this is in Jesus' usage, but as we shall see, he certainly was saying more than the pronoun I when he used the title Son of Man. This title is found copiously in the book of Ezekiel, for example, where God repeatedly calls the prophet Son of Man. Ninety times Ezekiel is called. The definition there in Ezekiel being to emphasize the weakness or frailty of the prophet, much like we find in Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, the angels. So Jesus certainly used this title to demonstrate 
his humanity. And with that, his hearers would have had little difficulty. Here's the title. They don't have a problem with too much. Even in our day, few people have trouble accepting Jesus Christ as a man. In fact, they prefer to think of him as a man and only as a man. It is his claim of deity, his assertion that he was and is the Son of God, as well as the Son of Man, that makes people angry and actually begin to protest. So long as we allow men to pick and choose what they want to believe about Jesus, they will always come up with someone less than the Jesus of the Bible. It's as though what God has declared doesn't much matter. What is important to them is what they think, even if their thinking is biased towards a view of Jesus, which makes them feel at peace to disbelieve him and to reject him. Then they have peace of conscience about their sin but it is a false and deceptive peace. God judges men on what he has revealed, not on their perceptions of what he has revealed. In this, God takes the definition of truth out of the hand of the individual, the subjective, and he places it squarely in the objective. Truth is what God says it is, even if man has a different opinion. Mankind hasn't learned that yet. One day they will. Part of this is evident in our study. I mean, had Jesus simply used the title, Son of Man to designate his humanity, his contemporaries would have accepted his usage. And they would have thought within themselves that they pretty much understood what he meant by the title. They could have said, well, uh, this man, Jesus, is telling us that he is a man sent from God, you know, like the prophet. He's a man sent from God, like Ezekiel. This is why his teaching has some merit, and we should pay attention to him. It always makes men feel good to think that they have figured out who Jesus is. This is bonus points for their pride. It's a gold star for their intellect. So it's not surprising that we find in Jesus' usage of the title, Son of Man, that he allied himself in that role of Messiah and his future glory to this as well. There's no, indi no clear indication historically that anyone in Jesus' day, even among the religious instructors, 
thought of the title Son of Man in terms of the coming Messiah, they just didn't think that way. That it would have been far from their thinking. Son of Man, man Messiah, no, nah, that can't be right. Man, Messiah, no. Later history, there is one passage in the Old Testament which the rabbis did associate with the Messiah. And that is the passage we read for our meditation at the beginning of today's worship, Daniel 7. Daniel the prophet is in vision, receiving from the Lord a revelation of what God wanted him to say to King Belshazzar about a dream he had concerning four beasts, each corresponding to four successive kingdoms, which God prophesied would make their appearance on the earth, the Babylon Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, Greece, and finally, Rome, all of which came true just as predicted. But amidst this interpretation of the king's dream, Daniel sees something else which really transcends the king's dream. He sees... Thrones set in place, Daniel says. Thrones set in place. And the Ancient of Days taking his seat and being attended by thousands, yes, 10,000 times, 10,000 attendants, verse 9, verse 10. So it is a courtroom scene, verse 10, and books are opened. What transpires in Daniel's vision is the judgment of the nations for their arrogance, for their revolt against God. And during the whole proceedings, Daniel says, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Verse 13 and 14 from Daniel's vision, chapter 9. How significant all of this really is. Daniel has been getting the lowdown on the secular nations, which either already are in power or will come to be in power as history unfolds. And then he sees the one called the Son of Man being given authority and glory and power by God to establish his own kingdom that will never pass away or be destroyed. This is unique. How did Medo-Persian empire come to be? Well, by destroying the kingdom of Babylon, its predecessor. Okay, how did Alexander the Great's kingdom of Greece come to be? Well, by overpowering the Medes and the Persians that came before. 
And then Rome swallowed up Greece. So the kingdoms of men are like that. Their power is limited to the resources of their disposal. So long as they remain strong, they're stronger than their enemies, they exist. But as soon as they lose out in military might and the power to govern, they collapse. But the kingdom of this one, called the Son of Man, is unique. His authority comes from God. His glory is of deity. His power is of an undefeatable sovereign. And in the end, the people all over the world worship him. Verse 14 and following. So here is a text in the Jewish scriptures which cannot be viewed as simply describing a mere man. And it is this theme, as used by Christ, to describe himself as the Messiah, which the Jews could not relate to. Huh? What are you talking about? Well, Jesus was not just a son of man, which the Jews of his day could have accepted. Oh yeah, we know that. You're a man. But rather he was the son of man, which is always the way Jesus uses this title of himself. In reference to the Daniel prophecies, we could say he is that son of man. meaning among all others, he is uniquely God's son, sent as a man to identify with us. Yes, but never to give up his greater identity as God. And so Jesus took a term, son of man, that no one in his day would have readily associated with the coming Messiah, and he made it the defining title of his life and ministry. You can imagine that while this was revealing in the sense that this had never been done before, it was also rather concealing in that the title contained enough of its old normal usage so as to confuse people as well. By the way, our Lord loved doing this. Our Lord was not like us in our witness. I mean, if someone comes to us and asks us a question on the Bible or on some aspect of theology, say maybe, um, well, what does the Bible say about the nature of God? Or what does it say about the origin of the universe? Whatever. If they do that with us, we will do our level best to answer their question. We will leave no stone unturned to provide them with all the Bible verses we can find on the subject. All the commentators who have written on the matter. 
and any corroborative material we may have in the secular histories. Boy, we just go at it. Oh, we want them to know Christ. We want them to understand. We want them to believe because we ourselves have experienced the joy and the peace and the knowledge of coming to know Christ and his salvation. But Jesus did not think that way. Nor did he act that way. When his disciples asked him why he taught the people in parables, his reply was this. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Okay, hang there with me now. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. This is Jesus still speaking. Whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken from him. And that is why I speak to them in parables. Those seeing, they don't see. And though hearing, they don't understand or hear. Matthew 13, verse 11 and following. This is strange. In his last days of instruction with the disciples, Jesus had said, You know, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. And because I am going to the Father, John 16, verse 17. And the disciples were all befuddled about this. They didn't understand any of it. Jesus responded, Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. Verse 5, John 16. Excuse me, verse 25. In the disciples' case, their understanding was hampered by the lack of the filling of the Holy Spirit, which had not yet come to them. So Jesus doesn't go beyond their abilities. In the case of the people and the parables, Jesus told these stories as much to conceal the truth as to reveal it. Parables are always in need of interpretation. Many of the interpretations Jesus reserved for his disciples in private quarters. This is what he meant in saying that what they knew had been given to them by God, that is, with the approval of God the Father, he gladly told them the meaning of the parables. But the people who were obstinate in unbelief and refused to accept what they heard, they were just left to stew in their ignorance and to suffer the consequences of their self-inflicted blindness. It's the same with this title, Son of Man. 
To God's people, the meaning was expansive. They came to understand Jesus' new employment of the term, and they saw in him not only a man, but the Son of God. To the unbelieving crowd, the term only depicted the personal pronoun, I. And it seldom got into the fullest identity of Jesus being divine. Now historically, the Son of Man sayings of Jesus have been divided into three categories. If you're taking notes, you might want to write these down. I'm going to go through them. Number one, those readings, though, excuse me, those relating to his public ministry. Number one. Number two, those readings relating to his suffering. And finally, number three, those readings that associate with his future glory. So three aspects of how he uses this expression, the Son of God, or the Son of Man. Let's look at each one separately. Jesus' public ministry, number one. Consider our text, verse 8. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will acknowledge him before the angels of God, but who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. This is similar to Mark 8.38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. End quote. So we learn here that even though Jesus is speaking of how men relate to his ministry, there is a sense of authority in the words he uses to demonstrate that this Son of Man is saying more than, well, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before the angels of God. Or again, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of him. No, no, no. This is not just simply the use of the title Son of Man as the personal pronoun I. Because this Son of Man has access to the angels of God and this Son of Man comes again in the glory of God the Father. Wow. Something new and astonishing. There is a present significance to his words. Someone is standing in the midst of these people who is not only preaching the kingdom of heaven, but who has a decisive role in deciding who enters it and who does not. And he must be more than a prophet like Ezekiel who was called the Son of Man, because no prophet in Israel ever claimed that his hearers should confess him before men or suffer consequences with God if they didn't. So do you see here the different authority Jesus brings to the title, Son of Man, as he applies the expression to himself? Again, consider the authority Jesus claimed 
to forgive sins. Oh, this is a biggie. This got him into a lot of hot water. I mean, the idea that a man, even the best of men, can forgive sins was very much foreign to the thinking of both Judaism and later to Christianity. The account told by Jesus was this. One day some men chopped a hole in the roof of a house in which Jesus was teaching, and they lowered their paralytic friend on a cot down through the roof in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Did I read that right? Yeah. Son, your sins are forgiven. Oh, boy. The teachers of the law that were there in the house on that occasion were thinking, and I'm reading scripture, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? Mark 2, verse 7. We read on. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Note, in all this, that Jesus did not say to the paralytic, I forgive you, as though this were something personal. Nor did he say, the Lord has forgiven you. As though he were but a prophet speaking for God. But rather, Jesus in his own person says, your sins are forgiven. Oh my. He spoke as one who is God himself and sees and acts in unity with the Father's will. These subtleties should not elude us. They show that Jesus' use of the title Son of Man in his public ministry conveyed much more than the simple fact that he was, hello, a fellow human being with the people to whom he ministered. He's saying much, much more than that. We could go on. This Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Mark, Mark 2, verse 28. So when the religious leaders questioned him as to why his disciples plucked grain and ate it on the Sabbath day, his point was that he had authority to permit them to harvest and eat since he was the one who originated the Sabbath day regulations in the first place. Boy, that blew their mind. He's Lord of the Sabbath. That's what he was telling them. Again, when Jesus went 
to the home of Zacchaeus. What did he say to the little guy? Today, salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man came to seek and to what? Save the lost. Save the lost. Luke 19, verse 9. That is to say, where this Son of Man is, salvation is too. You see how he's, he's explaining what the title means for him, and he's showing how it's different in how it's used, for example, of Ezekiel the prophet. John, the apostle, has his own collection of Jesus, Son of Man, sayings. But perhaps the most revealing, John 3, verse 13, he writes, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who has come down from heaven, the Son of Man. Ooh. And so this Son of Man, unlike others who may have used the title in Jesus' day, has a divine origin. Whoa. He's from heaven. Coming from heaven, he alone is uniquely qualified to speak of spiritual things. He knows heaven firsthand. He knows God the Father firsthand. Listen to him, and you will know how to enter the kingdom of heaven. Refuse to listen to him, or listen to him only as one who would listen to the teaching of an ordinary man, and you will perish in your unbelief. This wolf, this is such a high definition of Son of Man. And we need to catch that. Second, there are Son of Man passages which deal with Jesus' suffering. Firstly, his ministry. Now, secondly, his suffering. I mean, in the course of time, Jesus' disciples came to believe in him as the Messiah of Israel. This, that in itself was quite an obstacle to overcome in their thinking. But there was even a greater hurdle, and that was to accept the fact that the Messiah was to suffer and die. Oh no, that can't be! Their concept of Messiah was a deliverer king who would emancipate them from Roman servitude like President Lincoln freed the slaves in our country. <laughs> How can you free us if you're going to die? That's, that just didn't compute. To hear then from the lips of the one they knew as the Messiah that he was going to suffer and die and <sighs> it was a great shock. It was a big pill to swallow. Much then of Jesus' teaching was slanted towards convincing them, his disciples, that their own Old Testament 
particularly the Messianic Psalms, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 53, spoke candidly of a Messiah whose salvation would come only through his suffering, his death, and resurrection. These poor guys, they had to get over a lot of hurdles. In other words, the saving to be done would be spiritual in nature, not physical. Emancipation from the bondage of sin was the deliverance this Messiah promised, not emancipation from the bondage of Rome. And in this mix, we have Jesus' continued use of the Son of Man title. Mark 8, verse 31 says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. To Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. John 3, verse 14, and we know that has a reference to the cross. Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, he acts on behalf of the many by taking their place under the wrath of God. Isaiah 53, verse 11. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Well, how's he going to do that? For he will bear their iniquity. The many, but not all, the many are blessed with Christ's intervention. Jesus' own perception of all this is that in his dying for his people, he comes into his greatest glory. Let me read it for you. He says it this way. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 12, verse 23. Again, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. John 13, verse 31. The glory of the Savior is epitomized at the cross. For it is in the suffering Savior that God planned to save men is spelled out in no uncertain terms. So much clearer that without the cross, There's no salvation for anyone. Then thirdly and finally, the Son of Man is used of Christ to heighten his future glory. Vindication by God for his work. Jesus had been charged with blasphemy at his trial 
because he called himself God's son. When asked point blank, if he were the Christ, the son of the blessed one, Mark 16, verse 4, he answered, I am. Oh, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven, Mark 16, verse 42, which is an allusion, by the way, to Psalm 110, verse 1, showing that to be seated at God's right hand is to be seated at the place of God's supreme authority. This Son of Man was destined to become the Lord of his accusers, the judge of his executioners. Boy, talk about scary. Historically, judgment from the Son of Man. We read in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying, giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Matthew 24, verse 38. The coming glory is couched in terms of the Son of Man. We read, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. Matthew 25, verse 31. The prophecy of Daniel has come full circle. This one, who was seated next to the ancient of days in Daniel's prophecy, who has all authority, glory, sovereign power over all the nation, establishes his kingdom as the Son of God, who is the Son of Man. And that's a quote from Daniel. Now, what do we learn? Well, number one, we learn that Christ as the Son of Man has the authority to reveal himself or conceal himself to men as he sees fit. And insight as to his true identity is for him to decide, not you. Not me. This is very humbling. People think, ah, just tell me about Jesus. Tell me what you know, and I'll make up my own decision. In fact, preachers tell them to do that. Well, I preach now for 30, 40 minutes. The decision is up to you. You can come. God has given you a free will. I've done my part. Now you need to do your part.
But Jesus says, wait a minute. You're going to come to me. I will have to grant it. I will have to give you faith. I will have to give you repentance. Because you're not going to do it otherwise. So this title Jesus took to himself was as hiding of his true identity to many as the parables were of plain speech. You say, oh, I don't think that's fair. To disbelieve the God of truth when he speaks, is that fair to God? Hmm. To question the existence of God, the authority of the Creator, the identity of Jesus, the right of the Lord to rule over our lives, is that fair? We have to understand some basics here. In order for God to be fair, in order for God to be just, all he has to do towards us as sinning creatures is nothing. Nothing. I mean, if he left us all reap the consequences of our sin, the wages it pays is death, and the destiny it takes us to is hell, and all of that is pure justice. Because that's what we deserve. We don't understand sin like that, do we? That God sent a Savior to save many is pure mercy. That he reveals himself to some and conceals himself to others is pure grace. Mercy and grace have no meaning if all come to a right understanding of who the Son of Man is and believe. Faith is God's gift. Insight is God's pardon. One does not obtain this by the will of man, but by the will of God. This means that you are at the mercy of God. Salvation does not begin with your thoughts of Him, but of His thoughts about you. I think you should pray this way, that God thinks about you. We have it backwards. Man has it backwards. He thinks God exists for him. God will do whatever I ask. All I got to do is ask. He owes me. What a shocker people are going to discover someday. And I don't say that with glee. I say that with sadness. Because the truth is all in the scriptures. Just got to read it and believe it. Second, glory in God's kingdom comes through suffering and the cross is the triumph of Christ, not his defeat. We live in a world in which people want to begin at the top. 
People come into a shop or into an office. And they soon want to know what the other employees are making in terms of pay and benefits and so forth. And when they find out, it isn't long before they expect the same wages. It matters little to them that the older employees have paid their dues, so to speak, that they had come into the company when the pay was minimum wage and there was no time off for being sick and no health benefits and no vacations with pay. All they know is that they want the glory goods without traveling the glory road. Yet in God's kingdom, the way up has always been the way down. Say, what do you mean? Humiliation comes before exaltation. And nothing less happened with Jesus the Lord. As the Son of Man, he was persecuted by his contemporaries, misunderstood by his colleagues, betrayed by his own disciples, crucified by the leaders of his own Jewish faith. His exaltation was earned. You and I are entitled to nothing of glory without suffering with Christ. Many will never come to Christ because of this. They say to themselves, ha, I never bargained for this. this the, the Christian life is too hard. It's, it's, it's too demanding. I'm out of here. And soon they deny Christ before men and in many ways are ashamed of him because of his cross because he suffered so as the Son of Man. They find it tough to stick with him to the end where glory and exaltation await. They give up before they get started. Let us not give up on God because of wanting the easy, quick route to popularity, pleasure, and comfort. Hell awaits those on the broad, easy, cushy, pleasant road to destruction. But eternal glory awaits those on the narrow, restrictive, feet-hurting, back-breaking, arduous cow path just past that little small gate entrance, Matthew 16, verse 26. What good will it be for a man, asked Jesus, if he gains the whole world and yet, in the process, forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give 
in exchange for his soul. Thirdly, Christ was a king in his coming, a man in his suffering, and God in his exaltation in coming again. And you and I and all men will meet him in the flesh at his appearing to give an account of what we have done with the proof of his existence and ministry. It will be little comfort what Daniel says that all people, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. Daniel 7, verse 14. John identifies these as the redeemed of the Lord. I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language and standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation 7, verse 9 and verse 10. And when wishing to know the identity of those in white dress, the person in John's vision answered, well, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb and the robes stand for the people themselves and the washing in blood has to do with cleansing from sin not the laundering of materials physically if you're not repentant of your sin if you're not trusting in the death of Christ to cleanse you from your guilt the scene in Daniel, applicable to you is not the worship of the nations. No, no. It's the courtroom appearance where the books are open. There's no mercy there. You end up in that court, the verdict is condemnation. But happily I say to you this morning, today is your day of salvation. It is. Today. Today, not tomorrow. You don't have tomorrow. Not this afternoon. You don't have this afternoon. You have today. You have now. And it is the mercy of God to prod your heart that you might listen and obey. Our world is so arrogant, so satisfied in its smugness and in its sin. I'm going to tell God what I think of Him someday. Yeah, you are going to try, but every tongue will be silent. And you'll be hearing what you don't want to hear. You will be hearing the pronouncement of God Almighty who knows your life and your history and your story 
better than you do. He has a memory with it all lost. May God call you today. Come to Christ. He's provided salvation one way, through his son. And by the way, that son, Jesus, is going to pay for your sins. So it's not like he's letting you off the hook. It's not like he's turning and looking the other way. He's paying the debt for you in the person of his son. And the only request is, do you believe that? Will you accept that payment? No, I don't think so. I I don't think I'm that bad. Then you're going to, I don't think yourself all the way to hell. Because you are that bad. Well, I never murdered anybody. I never committed adultery. You need to read Revelation 27. Never tell a lie. John writes a description of hell, and he describes it as a place where all liars go. Yeah, but I said I was sorry or corrected myself. No. We live lies. We speak lies. We are deceptive. We give half-truths, which are all lies. Now, I'm just picking on that one sin. Ever have immoral thoughts? Ever have greedy thoughts? Ever covet somebody else's property? Wife? Blessings? Oh, boy, we get still going down this. Read Romans 2. And read the list of sin that Paul has. And there's another list in Corinthians, and another list here, another list there. The Bible authors are very replete in listing the sins of mankind. So that if you look and you can read, you will see you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. You're guilty, guilty. I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. There's no hope for me except in Christ who steps in and says, I know you're guilty, but I'll pay your price if you trust me. Oh, you mean you'll be my substitute? Yeah. That's what is meant by the substitutionary death of the Lord. He steps in where we fail. Father, I pray that you'll bless the word today to our hearts. We thank you so much. May you bring someone to know Christ today. How do they come? They come before you in prayer, and they plead their case saying simply that, yes, they agree with your evaluation of them in the scriptures, that they are lost sinners, and that only one can help them, That's the sinless Son of God, Jesus. The Son of Man. Oh, the one that came to help mankind. Yes. Yes. And dear Lord, we're just so thankful that you did that. And we certainly don't want to belittle it, because if we do, we're cutting off our own hand. 
We're silencing our own advocate. I pray, Lord, that we would come with thankful hearts for what you've done and believe it with all our heart. And you get the glory, and that's okay with us. We don't have any glory to get. But your son does. I pray, Lord, that we would see that. Bless us with your salvation today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity, and it's 466. 466. When you find 466, will you stand with me, please? Our Lord, we thank you that you sought us out. It's really true. We were having a high old time living in this sinful world, enjoying our sin, doing what we wanted to do. No one told us what to do. We just did our own thing. Merrily, merrily going along, giving no thought to God or his right to rule over us as the God and creator of the universe. But Lord, then you interrupted our happy time, our false happy time. The lies of Satan became 
evident to us. We found out he was a hater of righteousness. He hated God. Oh, and he was a liar and still is a liar who can deceive and make things look good and wonderful. But Lord, you came into our lives and you opened our eyes to see that this creature rebelled against you in glory and he came to earth to continue to see how many others he could take to hell with him. God, deliver us from his power. Deliver someone from his power today. May they see the grace. What a difference. Christ comes to give us grace and mercy and to love us and to see to it that we enter into eternal life, not death, not hell, not destruction. Who wouldn't want that choice? But men choose to live in sin because they love that sin. And they think hell is going to be a playground of immorality and sinfulness and greed and wealth and all the things the world has to offer. Not knowing that it is a place of utter darkness where there is no light. That it is a place of increasingly painful times and there's no escape, no remedy. The remedy is here it's in this life. It's in Christ. May we run to Christ. There's a cross. There's a cross that Jesus paid for our sins. So isn't, it isn't that you have left us off the hook. No, you paid for our sins so that hell was defeated and we escaped in Jesus. We thank you for this. We can hardly contain ourselves with thanks for what you did for us and continue to do. Thank you, dear Lord. Save whom you will. In Christ's name, amen. We are dismissed.